O Lord, our God and our Father in heaven, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let many islands sing together for joy, let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it, before the Lord, for He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. We come this morning, Father, to be judged by Your Word, to hear the truth of the voice of God, and we pray that Your Word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, would be living and active in this place, performing its work in our hearts, enlightening our hearts and our minds, renewing our wills, and giving us grace, O God, to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles, and to run with endurance the race set before us. And so, Father, we pray that You would help Your servant make much of Christ this morning in this sermon, and that the hearts of Your people would be built up, backsliders would be restored, and the lost would be saved. We offer these prayers for the glory of Your name and the growth of Your kingdom and the good of Your people. In Jesus, amen. If you would take your seats, please, and turn with me in your copy of the Word of God. to the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, and chapter 3. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear Philippians 3, verses 1 to 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, it occurred to me this week as I was thinking about what I might preach here this morning or what I might preach in presbytery, that this would be a good sermon to bring to the pastors and elders of our presbytery, um, because in it, Paul is reminding us of the basics of the Christian life. As pastors, as elders, we really are in the reminder business. We spend most of our time, or we ought to spend most of our time, reminding people of what they know only too well, but too easily forget. The, the, the problem in our Christian lives is rarely some unknown truth that we're yet to learn. The problem is often staring us in the face, staring us in the face in those well-worn, age-old truths that we've been taught since we were children, but are forgetting in the hour of need. And Paul never fails to, in his letters, to go back to the basics of the gospel. Like every other skill in life, the secret is, lies in mastering the basics. I was reading recently about Coach Wooden, the famous UCLA basketball coach who was the coach from 1945 to 78, or 48 to 75 in that middle of the century, but, uh, and led UCLA to so many of the national titles. He was one of the most successful, perhaps the most successful basketball coach 
in the history of college athletics in America. And every year, every new season, he would gather the team together, the seasoned old guys and the newbies, the freshman newbies, and he would teach them the basics. Not the basics of basketball, he did that as well, but the basics of how to put on your socks. Because he said too many basketball players rush at that crucial step and they aren't careful to, to, to stretch out and straighten out all the wrinkles over their pinky toe especially and over their heel. So when they put on their sneakers and run and cut and stop and sprint, the friction uh, over the time of the match will often give them a blister. And he said he's seen more than one key player in a key game be sidelined because he got a blister because he couldn't put his socks on straight. And it's important to master the basics. And Paul in this chapter is, is outlining truths he repeats again and again. Finally, my brothers, he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I've told you these things again and again and again. And I'm going to tell you them again, Paul says, and that's not a trouble to me. And it's safe for you because you need to hear these things because you are prone to forget these things. Now, let me just stop here and note for a second that Paul says, finally, at the beginning of the middle of his letter to the Philippians. He's got two more chapters to do, and he says, finally. It's really encouraging. You know, it's like that little boy who looked at his dad in the middle of the sermon and said, Daddy, when the pastor says finally, what's he mean? And the, and the father went, Son, he means nothing at all. <laughs> Well, Paul says, finally, finally, my brothers, and he's reminding them of the basics of the Christian life, and there are three in our text. First of all, he reminds them of the source of true joy. Secondly, he reminds them of the centrality of the gospel and what happens to people who forget it. And thirdly, he reminds them of the experiential basics, the experiential realities of the Christian faith. The source of true joy, the centrality of the gospel, and what happens to people who forget it, and the experiential basics or realities of the Christian faith. Let's work through those three things together. First of all, Paul says he wants us to, be, to remember um, the source of true joy. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians has been called an epistle of joy because it's full of it. There's joy all over the place. And he'll say again and again, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice, he says. Rejoice. Um, rejoice in the Lord, in your union with Christ. In the Lord. Um, there is perhaps no better diagnostic test of how you're doing spiritually right now by this one question. Where is your joy? We, we often in medicine have quick ways to examine a patient, like the ABC. You come across a patient, whether they're conscious or unconscious, you look at them and you do the A, the B, the C. A, airway, are they maintaining their airway or has it collapsed in them? 
B, are they breathing? How are they breathing? What's their respiratory rate? What's their color like? Is their chest moving symmetrically? Is their trachea central? All these things. And then C, circulation. What's their heart rate? Blood pressure? Their capillary refill? Are they shocked? Are they maintaining an adequate cardiac output? And then D, is there a neurological deficit? Is there spinal damage, head injury, whatever? Those A, B, C, D, the way you examine a patient. And it's, 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 it's the same no matter what's happened to them, whether it's a gunshot wound, whether it's a burn victim, whether it's someone out of, who's, who's been in the water and near drowning or actually drowned, or whether you're talking to somebody in a dermatology office, automatically you walk in and they're alert, they're talking to you, they're A, B, and C, you're fine. You, you, it's a subconscious thing you do, right? Well, Paul here is giving us, you might say, one of the great diagnostic tests of the Christian life. Rejoice in the Lord. Because if your joy has evaporated, it's always a sign that something is going wrong somewhere in your spiritual health. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If, in terms of your witness in the world, or your witness to your children and your wife or your husband, if you can't be a joyful Christian, it would almost be better if you weren't a Christian at all. A joyless Christian is, an, is a kind of blasphemy. When Christians are joyless, we deny everything we know about God, everything God has said about Himself, about His Son, about the Holy Spirit, about the gospel, about us, about the nature of our trials, about eternity. We only lose our joy if we forget all of that. Where's your joy this morning? And Paul says, we have joy in the Lord. That's his shorthand for saying, in our union with Him, that we're connected to Jesus. And think about that just for a second. Like this morning, I've been drinking a lot of coffee, and and it's mostly cream coffee. I put cream in it this morning. It's better for your teeth, I'm told. And so, um, it's bad enough having a black robe, but I want a black teeth as well. So, uh, you put cream in the coffee, and the cream and the coffee unite, and you get this new thing, right? And they're, they're joined together in the same cup, and it changes everything. And, and, and once they're together in the cup, you can't separate them again. It's coffee and cream together, united. Like two drops of water we said in the past on the, on the windshield of a car, and the wind blows them together. And the moment they touch, the two drops coalesce, and you can no longer tell the one from the other. And that's the way it is, Christian, with you. When you put your faith in Jesus, you become one with Him. Actually, you were one with Him in God's mind before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians 1 verse 3, Paul says, God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, before there was time, before there was space, before there was matter, before there was anything. God looked at you, and He looked at you in Jesus. God has never looked at you without thinking of Christ in the same thought. He looks at you through Christ-colored spectacles, and it changes everything in your life before God. Um, Think about that for a second. You were united to Jesus in God's heart then in eternity. He's always looked at you through Christ-colored spectacles, Christian, and He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's an amazing thing. 
We speak of people looking at the world through rose-colored spectacles. They look at the world in a Pollyanna kind of way. Everything's brighter than it really is, warmer than it really is, you know. Rose-colored spectacles. Well, God looks at you through Christ-colored spectacles. He always has, and He always will. He'll never look at you as you are in yourself. He only looks at you, Christian, as you are in Christ. And that union came to fruition when you put your trust in Jesus. And you became spiritually, covenantally, experientially one with Him. Now, think about that. When Christ was living on this earth, when He stepped out of eternity into time and became a zygote tumbling down the fallopian tube of the virgin and then nestled in her womb and was born of her yet without sin and and grew as a toddler and as a little boy and as a grade school child in in Nazareth, and then um, as He became a teenager and as He became an adult, in all those moments, you were one with Him in a spotless righteousness. Think about that for a second. We said a few weeks ago that the average human being, they say now, has 78,000 thoughts a day, and most of them are negative thoughts. And you know that, you just go to Walmart for two seconds, and you're sitting there thinking, I can't believe, look at that person, they're wearing their pajamas to Walmart. She's in her underwear at Walmart. It's unbelievable. What's become of the world? Look at the food that woman's buying for. It's just so unhealthy, all those colors and everything else. Our thoughts are just constantly negative. Even secular scientists will say. And God says even more that we said, remember, that all of our thoughts are sinful. Every intent of the thoughts of our heart are only evil continually. We said that a few weeks ago. Every intent, only evil continually. I was talking um, to Phyllis after the sermon, and, um, and Phyllis said to me, you know, when I said that, she said, and I wish I'd said it myself whenever she told, said it to me, so I'm saying it now, she said, you know, Jesus never once had a sinful thought. Whenever his brothers mocked him, because they hated Jesus, he's always right, never wrong, even when Daddy spanked him, he took it lovingly, and, it was, and Daddy had to go back and apologize because he didn't deserve the spanking. And, and, and just this hated him, right? And remember when they said to him, go on up to Jerusalem and do your thing at the feast, you know, when they said that in John's gospel, mocking him. Not one sinful thought. When the beautiful prostitute who was in repentance came and washed his feet with her hair, not one sinful thought. When the Roman soldier knelt over him on his arm, his knee dug into the nerves between his bicep and his tricep, and another one held a, a, a nail over the wrist, and another one with a sledgehammer drove that big rusty iron nail through skin and tendon and his median nerve in his wrist. And you think about just banging your nerve in the the corner of your elbow off something, and you have explosions of pain. Can you imagine getting a nail driven through the nerve, through bone, through skin on the far side, into the wood? Not one sinful thought. His whole life, all of his thoughts were righteous and honorable and true and just and kind and patient and selfless. Not one selfish thought always putting other people's needs before his own. And you are in union with him. All of his righteousness has been wired, as it were, into your account, 
God deals with you not by the things that you have said, thought, and done. He deals with you on the basis of what Christ has said, thought, and done. Absolute, limitless perfection, that you have a righteousness in Christ that is more righteous than the angels, more righteous than Adam could ever have had if he had never sinned. Because the best Adam could have brought was like 6,000 years, or I don't know, 10,000 years of perfect living as a human being. But Christ wasn't just a human being. He was also God the Son, and this infinite, eternal, and unchangeable dignity and glory lends a weight to all of His thoughts and all of His words and all of His deeds, a weight that is as big as God Himself. And that righteousness is yours, Christian. And you can only lose your joy if you forget all of that. And then on the cross, when He became your sin, and God poured all of your lust, all of your covetousness, all of your envy and your murder and your strife and your hatefulness and your lack of patience with your children and your untidy bedroom that you're too lazy to fix and sort out, or your persnickety self-righteousness determination of everything tidy and in order, whatever it is. He took all of the sin, all of your pornography, all of your um, selfishness, all of your hate, all of your malice, all of your rage, and he poured it into Jesus, and it became his. By the same logic as his righteousness becomes yours, your sin becomes his very own. He felt the weight of the psalmist's words, my sins are more in number than the hairs of my head, because he had no sin of his own, but he had all of our sins to contend with, and they became his at the deepest possible level, and he bore them away as far as the east is from the west, which is much better than from the north to the south, because the, 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 you, you can go to the North Pole, you can go to the South Pole, and they're a finite distance apart, but there's no East Pole and there's no West Pole. He separated your sins from you, Christian, as far as the east is from the west. If you go north in the globe, eventually you'll start going south, and you'll catch up with the South Pole. You go east and you can go for east forever and a day, but you'll never get to the west. You'll keep going east. That probably breaks down somewhere, but you understand the, the logic. My brain's tired. Anyway, so, um, and you can only lose your joy if you forget all of that. And then he's been raised in union with you, like a needle and the thread. Everywhere the needle goes, the thread follows. Christ has been raised to the right hand of the majesty on high, and Paul says, you are with Him there now on the throne of the universe. With your old age and your baldness and your bifocals and your bulges and your bunions, you're there on the throne of the, with Christ. Even there with your Parkinson's disease and your cancer in union with Christ. When God determined and, and sent cancer into your life, Christian, He didn't just send it into you. He also, in a true sense, also sent it into Jesus because you're part of Jesus. He is your head and you're His body. He's one with you, and your cancer is His cancer. You can trust a Savior who shares your cancer with you.
And even the trials that afflict you, we can be joyful in them because there's a purpose in them. Count it all joy, not just a little bit, but all joy when you fall into diverse trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. There's somebody at work behind your faith. There's a purpose at work behind your trials and in your trials and through your trials to grow you up and make you an enduring, steadfast Christian. They're not meaningless. You're not cast about in the, in the, um, the flotsam and jotsam and the, and the winds of chance and chaos. You're gripped by the tender hand of a gentle omnipotence and a kindly omnipotence, and a merciful omnipotence who's too wise to make a mistake and too loving to cause you a needless tear. And you can only be miserable, Christian, if you forget all of that. And it's a kind of blasphemy when you do and when I do. The source, then, of true joy. We need constant reminders of that because we constantly forget that. And then secondly, we need constant reminders about the centrality of the gospel and of what happens to us when we forget it. In the Hebrew language, a threefold repetition is the greatest emphasis they can give, right? So, holy, holy, holy is the greatest emphasis. Only God is holy, holy, holy. Well, here, Paul says, beware beware, beware. And it rhymes. Each of the, each of the um, words begins with K. Like the Greek word for dog comes from can, our canine word. It's, 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 um, and also evildoers begins with K, and um, those who mutilate the flesh begins with K as well. And so, Paul is is saying, beware, 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 the K, 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 right? Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evildoers. Beware for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, if you knew anything about Paul's writings in the New Testament, you know that Paul here has been, he's talking about the Judaizers or, or the circumcision party, right? Now, we often think of the Judaizers, Pharisees, circumcised, circumcision party, who are professing Christians, right? And don't forget, Peter became one of them for a while, and Paul had to rebuke Peter in Galatia because of it. But we often think about the, 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 the Pharisee party, the circumcision party, the Judaizer party, as kind of the way English soldiers were taught to think of Germans in the Second World War, and the way Germans were taught to think of Englishmen during the Second World War, as these kind of big, hairy, huge beards, tusks, you know, hair going out of the ears, you know, teeth, fangs, and claws, and just barbarians, right? Not saying if you have a beard, you're a barbarian, you understand. But um, you've seen the pictures, right? And they were taught to kind of demonize the enemy. And we think of the Judaizers like that. Okay. Now, um, you got, but you got to understand the Judaizers were kind of like, well, the Presbyterians of Paul's day. They took God really seriously. They took worship really seriously. They took the law really seriously. They took sin really seriously. They took repentance really seriously, and they took holiness really seriously. They were really serious. And the 
the Judaizer party were very concerned that when the Gentiles came into the church, that they would kind of, well, remain Gentiles. And that would be terrible because they would be dogs, evildoers, and engaged in pagan rituals like the prophets of Baal, cutting themselves, mutilating the flesh, right? And in one sense, Jesus shared that concern. Remember, He said to the Canaanite woman, it's not good to give the children's dogs, sorry, the children's bread to the dogs, right? Your dog, He was saying. Now, He was testing her to see if she would, she would own her place as outside the covenant community. That's another sermon. Um, it sounds brutal, and in one sense it was, but, but, but Christ isn't nice, but He's good. And He'll test us to see if we will admit the truth about ourselves. And outside of Christ, that's what we are. We're all dogs. And He doesn't mean pets. He means those rabid, mangy, coyote-like creatures. And that's an insult to coyotes, but that, 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 that roam on the edge of town and eat roadkill. And Paul, you remember, when he writes to the Ephesians, he was also concerned. He says to these, these former Gentiles who have now become part of the Israel of God, the church in the New Testament, he says, I want you no longer to walk as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of all kinds of uncleanness with greediness. And Paul describes the Gentile lifestyle as basically empty heads, hard hearts, filthy lives. And Paul says, don't live that way anymore. And the Judaizers were saying, amen. We, 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 we want the Gentiles to be less Gentile. We want the Gentiles to become, well, frankly, Jewish. Because aren't they the Israel of God? And what these men then said essentially was, we're really concerned. We don't want these people to lose their connection to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To, to lose their connection to the law, the prophets, the writings to lose their connection to the Old Testament, to lose their connection to the Israel of God, to lose their connection to circumcision and all it means, Paul says. And so, for them to become part of the church, for them to be Christians and sure they're going to heaven, they've got to believe in Jesus, but they've also got to be circumcised. And in that moment, Paul said, they destroyed the gospel and actually became the very things they were trying to avoid. They became dogs. All of their concern with the law and Sabbath-keeping and sacrifices and the festivals became evildoers, evil deeds. The best we can be outside of Christ is evil, and our best righteousness are like filthy rags, splendid sins, the Puritans called them. All of your Sabbath-keeping outside of Christ. All of your family worship outside of Christ. All of your Bible reading outside of Christ. All of your homeschooling outside of Christ is but a splendid sin. Does not recommend you to God one bit without Jesus Christ. And these, these Judaizers, when they added circumcision to the gospel, they didn't get a little bit more of the gospel. They got no gospel because the gospel is like a perfect... Um, House of cards built by Jesus, and it's beautiful. And here we come along like Inspector Clouseau, you know, with our shaky hand, 
or our hands stuck in the, 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 the iron glove with the ball attached to it. Remember in the movie, you can't get it off. And we come to the house of cards and we think, oh, I'll just change this card a little bit. It'll be better if I turned it around a bit. And you try and fix the house of cards and you take one card out and the whole thing collapses. Or you try to add a, a, a card to the house of cards with your intention tremor and the whole thing collapses and the gospel's just like that. It's all Christ or it's nothing. And we'll come back to this next week, but there's a thousand ways we as Christians, we as Presbyterians, forget that. As we try to figure out a way, what, what, what do I need to be and do so that I'm no longer, so that I'm not nothing? Excuse the double negative, but you know what I mean, right? Uh, how, can I, how can I justify myself, right? And then we want a little bit of the gospel, and then we want, want to, you know, keep the Sabbath, be orthodox, fully subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith, right? Family worship every day, and catechize your children, and all, and, and, and all these things we can think somehow add to our righteousness. And the other side of the theological divide in, in Presbyterianism, you've got those who want to say, no, no, to be, to be really righteous, you need Jesus, the gospel, but you also got to be concerned for the poor, got to have lots of minority friends on gangs, got to be friends with the, the LGBTQ and Q crowd. How many gay friends do you have? That's the real test of how great a Christian you are. And, and these things can become their badges that justify them and make them feel better about themselves. And Paul is saying here, in a sense, if you look at anything that you do to make yourself feel better about yourself, to justify yourself before God and before men and your own conscience, you don't add to the gospel. You don't even take away from the gospel. You lose the gospel completely, and you become a dirty dog, and the best things you can do are splendid sins, evildoers, and you become the theological equivalent of a gender reassignment surgeon mutilating people, not just in their bodies, but in their souls. The gospel is that central. It's all Christ or it's nothing. And Paul never tires about reminding people about the importance of the gospel, its central place in the church, and of what happens to a person if you forget it. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. It's like those fire alarms whenever the battery goes dead, and then it goes beep, and you're sleeping, and you're kind of going, it'll not happen again. And the person who designed those things is criminally insane because he knows just, just how long it takes for you almost to get back to sleep again. And it goes, beep. <laughs> and you, it's, too, it's too much trouble to go and try and find a, a battery in the, in the junk drawer. I'll, I'll just leave it. And then you're almost sleep, beep. And it drives you nuts, right? And that's like Paul. Beep. Beware of dogs. Beep. Beware of evildoers. Beep. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. The centrality of the gospel and what happens to people who forget it, it destroys everything in the church. And then lastly, Paul says, and I do mean lastly, um, the experiential realities of the Christian faith. Four, look out for these things. Why? For we are the circumcision. Just stop there a second. That's incredible, right? That's shocking that Paul would say that. Because 
Paul is trying to warn you against the circumcision party. So the last thing you'd think he would say would be circumcision. You'd think he'd say, we are the baptism or the Baptists, right? Uh, forget circumcision. No, Paul doesn't want to forget circumcision because it matters not that we cut in the flesh, but a deeper circumcision, the circumcision of Christ, which has always been the only thing that mattered, even in the Old Testament, as Paul says in Romans 2, 28, for we are, sorry, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and circumcision isn't outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcisions of the heart by the Spirit whose praise is not from men but from God. And so you'll find in Ephesians and Colossians, Paul is constantly speaking about the kind of circumcision a man can do, cutting off a little piece of skin, and comparing that with the kind of circumcision only Christ can do, cutting away the very sinful nature and its power to rule and destroy you. So, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, he says, For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, the sinful nature, by the circumcision of Christ. And Paul is saying, don't let the Judaizer party add to the gospel with a little cut on your member. You, You need a deeper cut that goes all the way to your soul, that cuts you to the heart. Even Moses knew that when he said again and again and again, circumcise your hearts, he said. We are the circumcision. The reality of the Abrahamic covenant hasn't gone away. In Galatians 2, Paul says, if any man is Christ, he is heirs of is Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The Abrahamic covenant is still going today. We are members of it. We are the true Jews. And we don't deny the reality of circumcision. The sign is no longer significant, pun intended. It's the reality now in our hearts. And then Colossians 2, Paul says that reality has been taken over by baptism. Baptism is now the sign of entering the covenant community. Baptism and circumcision signify the same thing. Circumcision, the need for a new heart, and baptism are the sign of our need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and the regenerating waters of God's grace, right? Um, But the reality is still that we need our hearts changed. And Paul never gets tired of telling you that. The best you can be without a new heart is dead in your sins. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how reformed you are. I don't care how much you might memorize the shorter catechism, the larger catechism, and the Westminster Confession of Faith. You might duct tape your children to chairs so they can't do any work, play, or have fun on the Sabbath day. You might stick John Owen, volume 6, in each of their hands, make them read volume 1, 3, and 6 before the day's out. You can do all those things, but if you are dead in your soul, the best you can be is dead. The best you can be is lost. You need to be born again, Jesus says. And that's the reality of circumcision in the heart regenerating grace. And Paul reminds us of the importance of it. 
And what happens to a person when that cut pierces them to their soul is beautiful. He's then continuing on in these basic experiential realities. Who are the the true circumcision? Those who worship by the Spirit of God. Worship is the verb of Christianity. It's not first feed the poor. It's not first reach out to the lost. The, The first verb of Christianity is worship God. That's why I never feel, never go tired of telling our new members, we only do three things here in this church. We reach up to God and worship. We reach into the church for discipleship and fellowship. We reach out to the world with the gospel. That's all we do. Nothing snazzy. But it's all meaningless and powerless and lifeless without the experience of God in worship, worshiping God by the Spirit. That's the, that's the, indiv- well, I can't remember how you pronounce it, Endivadalir, the, the, the neutron star where they made Thor's hammer, right? When it died, it was a dark, lifeless place. And when worship dies in the church, it becomes a dark, lifeless place. It's here as we worship God and contemplate Him and magnify Him and experience Him and praise Him. That's where we get the energy to do everything else in the church, everything else in our marriage, everything else with our children, everything else in the world. It all comes from experiencing God in Christ by the Spirit in worship. Have you you lost that? I can lose that. Um, In my ministry, so busy, the prayer list is as long as a cow's tail. And um, praying for so and 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 so. Done, tick, right next. Then pastoral visitation, then sermons, next sermon, then conference sermon, then presbytery, then administration. Filling in my receipts for Eric, our tireless church treasurer. And in the midst of all the busy work of ministry, I can lose what it is to spend time in the unhurried contemplation of God in worship. And if that can happen to me, I dare say it can also happen to you as you live out in the world, surrounded and assaulted by the busyness of life, the deceitfulness of riches, and the simple desire for other things. And Paul reminds us of this experiential reality. Who are we? We are the circumcision whose hearts have been changed. And we express that change in the worship of God. And then we glory in Christ Jesus. We're enthralled by Him. We love Him. There's no one like Him. I was telling the brothers yesterday, I said, one of my great concerns in Presbyterianism is there are way too many Presbyterian ministers who to describe the beauty of Christ with all of the passion of a vegan describing the delights of a medium-rare filet mignon. <laughs> Their words are right. They're true. Nothing wrong with them. But it sounds like a biologist dissecting a rat. And they're talking about the glory of the Son of God 
who loved me and gave himself up for me. And as Whitfield said, there are far too many ministers, and at times I'm one of them, who preach an unknown and an unfelt Christ. God forbid that I would preach an unfelt Christ. But what's a Christian? A Christian is someone who glories in Christ. He's everything. And they put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence. No confidence in anything done by me. No confidence in... in, in you know, part of the problem, is it, it goes back to the Fort Lauderdale question, you know, the EE question. You get to heaven, you stand before God, the angels, and they ask you, what, why should we let you in? What do you answer? And our basic problem is we answer in the first person. I, well, you should let me in because I believe in the gospel. Well, do you? Do you believe? Yes. Do you really believe? Yes. You sure? Yes. Do you have any unbelief in your belief? Yes. Can you have faith in your faith? Uh, I'm beginning to wonder, can I? I don't think so. I'm a bit worried about this because there's a lot of unbelief in my life too. Is your faith strong enough to save you? And you think, that's a good question. My goodness. Uh, and we think of faith as like a clapometer in those old you know, talent shows where the band plays and then the audience clap and the louder they clap, the lights and the clapometer rise and there's a line up here and, the, and, and, and what, do the lights rise far enough to get to the line? And, and the devil says, does your faith rise high enough to really save you? And you think, oh, stress. I hadn't thought of it like that, thought of it like that before and you get stressed. And then, well, why? She's like, well, I believe, but I, but I also repent. I've turned away from my sins. Really, have you? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. Do you hate all your sins? Most of them. What about your favorite sins? Have you repented of those? Yes. When did you repent of them? Yesterday. And the day before that. And the day before that. And the day before that. Have you repented? doesn't look like it. Uh, help. And you start feeling like, oh, no, I've repented. And you think, oh, I can't trust my faith. I can't trust my repentance. And, oh, and we realize that the way to answer the question is not in the first person. The way to answer the question is in the third person. It's not what I have done. It's not what I believe. It's not what I feel. It's about Him. And He has loved me. And He has died for me. And He lived for me. And He was delivered over because of my condemnation. And He was raised because of my justification. Because I'm no longer condemned. It's all about Him. I put no confidence in myself. It's not my faith. I don't have faith in my faith. Faith is powerless. It's only power is what do you put your faith in? And we put our faith in Jesus. And if you have the faith of a spider's web, but it's faith in Jesus, the weakest faith brings all of the strength of Christ down into the soul to save you. No confidence in myself. Nothing done by me, nothing done to me, nothing done in me, but simply and only what Christ has done for me. Now, I used Alistair Begg's illustration at Presbytery of the dying thief, and I wasn't going to use it here because I used it about six months ago, I think, and, but one of the presbyters asked me to use it again because there's a person they're discipling here who they think would benefit from it. So, 
You heard it before, you can leave. And if you want to stay, you can stay, that's fine. But you remember Begg's illustration of the dying thief. And he said, when I get to heaven, I want to meet this guy, right? And I want to ask him, how did it shake up for you? Because, like, you never went to church, you never got baptized, you never went to Bible study, and the last I saw you, well, almost, you were cursing Jesus with your friend, cursing Jesus. And then suddenly you have this chat with Jesus about remembering you when he gets to heaven, and he says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. So, boom, you're dead, and you're before the angels. What happened? And he has this wonderful kind of story, apocryphal, of course, but he goes to the angel, and the angel says, what are you doing here? And he says, I don't know. And the angel says, what do you mean you don't know? I don't know. Hold on a second. So the angel goes and gets the supervisor angel who comes down. And he says, no, this is very serious. He said, let's begin with your baptismal certificate. Can I see it, please? I don't have one of those. Okay, let's begin. With, what about just, are you absolutely sure on justification by faith alone? Justify what? Okay, the Bible. Do you believe the Bible is the inspired and errant Word of God? I've never read the Bible. Well then, sir, can you tell me what on earth are you doing here? And the man says, I'm here because the guy in the middle cross said I could come. And if you have a problem with that, take it up with him. Here's a man, he was cursing Jesus. And he's hanging there, Christ is, naked on the cross, no loincloth, naked, blood, his own excrement, urine dripping down the cross into an acrid, stenching heap at the bottom of it. He's lying there, almost half past dead completely. And he sees in this Jesus a suffering bigger than all the world. He's seen men die before, but he never saw a man die like this. And he sees in Jesus this crown of thorns, and above his head, this is the King of the Jews. And there was something about Jesus, his poise, the way he prayed for his enemies that God would forgive them. They know not what they do. The nobility of his courage, the way he worshiped in hell. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's not just quoting the Psalms, he's using the Psalms to process his experience in faith to the God who was rejecting him because of my sin. And he's, he's, he's going to the only place he can go to find words to help him turn toward the God who's abandoned him. And he goes to this altar, and he sees him do that. And in the greatest act of faith I think the world has ever seen, he sees through the blood and the excrement and the nakedness and the stench and the death, and he sees the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and he suddenly stops cursing, and he says, will you remember me when you come into the kingdom? And Jesus says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. All that man had was nothing. 
but Jesus. And the sad fact of the matter is, when all you need is nothing, nothing is the one thing most men don't have. They want to bring something else to recommend themselves to Jesus, to recommend themselves to God, to recommend themselves. And there's nothing we bring but sin. We make no other contribution. It's simply Jesus. All or nothing. Either he die or me die. But if he die, me no more die. The slave once said in the cotton field in Mississippi, he die or me die, but if he die, me no more die. And we need to be reminded of that, to glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Because we forget that every day. Every day. We'll come back next week and think about that, how we forget the gospel. But today I want you to remember it. Trust Jesus. There's nothing your sin can do. There's nothing your cancer can do. There's nothing old age can do. There's nothing anyone can do. Nothing Satan can do to separate your soul from the glory of who Jesus is and of what Jesus has done for you. It's not what's done by you, not what's done in you, not what's done to you, not what's done through you that counts, but what Christ has done for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray, O God, that you would speak to all of our hearts this day and show us the beauty of Jesus the Son of God, dead in our sins, dead for our sins. We might spend our lives worshiping in the Spirit, glorying in Christ Jesus and putting no confidence in the flesh. It really is the basics of everything, the basics of the Christian life. And we'll never get very far in anything, putting on our socks for basketball or living the Christian life if we forget the basics. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.